T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome to the show, folks. I'm going to get right down to it today. I was talking with some parents the other day. They're the parents of an 18-year-old boy, recently graduated from high school, who has just announced to them that he is gay. And he told them that uh, he can't help it, that he has been gay since birth, that uh, being gay, homosexual, is a matter of biology, and one cannot help their sexual orientation or change it, and uh, that he has had homosexual thoughts and homosexual attractions since uh, early on in his life. And the parents came to me, they're both Christian people, and asked me if this was or was not true. And I told them the truth, that it is not true. There's not a single idea contained in that young man's explanation that is true. It is completely false. And unfortunately, however, this idea that homosexuality is biologically determined can't be changed, has worked its way into popular culture. It has worked its way into popular culture because of the activities of the LGBT, XYZ, whatever they're calling themselves these days, community. They are, if nothing else, masters of media manipulation. And they have persuaded the media, even some right-wing media, even some right-wing talk show hosts, that uh, homosexuality is uh, something that uh, is inborn, can't be changed, and uh, that we all need to therefore accept it, and uh, that it's, uh, you know, just it's the equivalent of any other uh, condition, your skin color, your eye color, your hair color. And so on and so forth. In fact, that is the biggest scam of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. The single biggest scam. There is not one whit of good scientific evidence to support those ideas. In a major article in 
a magazine called First Things. And the issue in question is the February 2012 issue, if you want to go back and uh, look that up in your local library, February 2012 issue of First Things magazine. It's a monthly magazine. Stanton Jones, who is a professor of psychology at Wheaton College, which is a reputable Christian college, has provided the reader a very thorough review of relevant scientific studies into the issues under discussion. And whereas Jones acknowledges that there's a great deal science does not know about homosexuality, he concludes that sufficient studies have now been done to give the lie to all of the common assumptions that I listed above. Let's review some of Professor Stanton Jones' findings. Number one, he points out that the best and most comprehensive studies available suggest that depression and substance abuse are 20 to 30% more prevalent among homosexuals. Now, the significance of this is that the left-wing media claims that uh, the reason for the higher rate of depression in the homosexual community is because of their distress concerning societal rejection, etc., etc. Jones, however, suggests the possibility that the sexual orientation cuts against a fundamental biblical understanding of gender, a fundamental biblical understanding of gender, thus creating psychic distress. In other words, what he is saying is that the depression rate among homosexuals, which is again 20 to 30% higher than among heterosexuals, is because these people are doing something unnatural. And the unnaturalness of what they are doing creates a fundamental psychic distress that expresses itself in the form of anxiety disorders, depression. And by the way, there's a much higher suicide rate in the homosexual community as well. There is then the claim that uh, homosexuality is uh, genetically determined, but Jones points out that the latest and most comprehensive studies of twins and siblings show that heritability for homosexuality is relatively weak, no stronger than for any other behavioral tendency. There is no evidence, he says, to support the notion that these tendencies are not modifiable, as are other behavioral tendencies, such as a tendency to watch a great deal of television, which appears also to be inheritable. Isn't that fascinating? In other words, he's saying, if homosexuality does have some genetic transmission component, 
that genetic component is no stronger than the genetic component for watching television. And if you inherit a tendency to watch a lot of television, well, you can, by choice, decide that even though you have this genetic pressure within you to watch a lot of television, that you aren't going to watch a lot of television. And in the same sense, Jones is saying if a person has some genetic pressure to be a homosexual, they can, by choice, decide they are not going to submit to that genetic pressure. The third interesting point that uh, Jones covers is the proclamation by the psychiatric establishment, which some of you may know depathologized homosexuality in the early 1970s, took it out of the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, despite the psychiatric proclamation that homosexual orientation cannot change, no body of properly conducted studies proves this contention. In studies, Jones himself has led 23% of homosexuals successfully changed their sexual orientation. Another 30% were able to begin living chastely And so, in short, the idea that homosexuality is irreversible, inborn, genetically driven, biologically determined, is, the polite term would be, hogwash. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, folks. The show is called Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Roseman, and we have a guest with us today, and I'm delighted that we do. She's a longtime friend. Her name is Rosemary Stein. She's a pediatrician in Burlington, North Carolina, and interestingly enough, is also running for superintendent of education in North Carolina. Rosemary, how are you today? I'm doing fine. Very happy to be here, John. Yeah, well, thanks. I'm delighted uh, that you agreed to come on the show. So um, you've been, uh, you've had an interesting transition in your practice over the last few years. You've gone from a practice that's been uh, predominantly medical into more and more of what is called behavioral pediatrics. And can you just tell me about that journey, a little bit about it? Well, John, that you were instrumental in that journey. Uh, several years ago, I went to one of your two-day conferences, and you opened my eyes to the fact that uh, not only our children are doing badly, uh, let's say, less well than we'd like, uh, but also that um, moms and the parents are really the key uh, to that, that behavior. And I started uh, on this journey, uh, I guess, about four or five years ago now, uh, and it's been amazing to seeing these children's lives turn around and, and to have more content, less frustrated parents and children uh, has really been a godsend. And I have you to thank for that. Oh, well, that's very kind and gracious of you. 
You uh, you came to this two day what I call a parent retreat, and folks, if you have more interest in those, you can you can go to my website johnroseman.com. I've got two of these experiences upcoming, uh, one in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, in about a week, uh, as a matter of fact, and then another one in Phoenix, Arizona, in early March. And if you're interested in attending one of those, just uh, there's directions on the website for doing so. So, Rose, prior prior to uh, attending this two-day small group experience in Gastonia, North Carolina with me, did you more or less subscribe to a medical model when it came to child behavior problems? It, I, I guess mostly so. I knew that there was um, more of a, a things that the parents should be doing, but I approached it very differently. I sort of approached it, as most parents do, uh, reactively, uh, so that the parent, the child would dis- misbehave, and I would tell the the parent uh, to take something away or to clear out his room from for everything that was in there. And it would sometimes help, but they would come back, and the behavior wasn't doing as well. And there was something in what you discuss with the group, which was a certain demeanor that the parent had, where the parent was in charge. And that once you've achieved that demeanor, that you have most of what you have to do as a parent taken care of. And that was really what started the journey in, in that it's, it's really a messaging from the parent and not the parent having to chase down the child's behavior. And that really was the big turnaround in the practice and seeing all of these children uh, really have a successful lives. Well, that is, uh, it's paradigm shifting for a lot of parents when they come to these retreats or even my evening presentations or my Sunday afternoon seminars at churches. And they hear me say that uh, the discipline of a child is primarily a function of the proper presentation of authority on the part of the parent. And that that's the problem in American uh, parenting today. Parents no longer seem to really understand how to properly present themselves to their children as authority figures. And um, one of the things that I say, and, and you know this, Rose, is that uh, a child's natural response to the proper presentation of authority is obedience or submission. And the second thing that we need to keep in mind always when we're discussing the discipline of children is that study after study has found that the happiest kids are also the most obedient children. So if you want to make your kids happy, the first thing you need to do is uh, is um, make them obedient, willingly obedient. And so you shifted from this consequence-based method of discipline to a what I call a presentation-based uh, model of discipline. That's, that's correct. Um, I, I think I use a different word, which is a proactive instead of reactive, because moms understand the proactive. You, you, you go into uh, being a, a mom as, with the presence or presentation of a mom. Right, right. And, and I, you know, I was, uh, I was outlining a uh, two-day retreat that I'm doing, uh, as I said, upcoming in Concord, North Carolina, and I was listing the elements that go into what I call leadership speech. And it's uh, an economy of words. You don't use a lot of words when you're giving an instruction to a child. You simply come straight to the point, as in, 
I want you to pick up these toys. Number two, you don't explain yourself because explanations invite pushback, and it is explanations on the part of parents that cause arguments between parent and child. Uh, You simply give the instruction. If the child demands to know why he is being told to do something, you simply say, because I said so, that's why, Um, which most people recoil at, but it's really, those four words are really nothing more than than a simple affirmation of parental authority. And in one way, shape, or form are used by effective authority figures in uh, whatever context they may be found. It's a very simple, and I I like the term proactive uh, way of uh, delivering authority to a child and in that manner avoiding having to use consequences over and over and over again. That's absolutely true. And I've I've seen that when the parent is constantly punishing, the value of the punishment decreases, and then the, the parent starts feeling that it's futile, that right. she's getting nowhere, and, and the, the parent gets despondent. Right, and, and this is where the parent comes back at you and says, well, I've tried that, and I've tried that, I've tried everything. And the problem is, generally speaking, as you point out, Rose, that the parent has been using punishment or this consequences-based approach to discipline so much that consequences uh, have taken on no meaning. They have no value to the child whatsoever. Um, he's uh, he's immunized to them. He's habituated to them. <laughs> and I like that one. I've never I've never thought of it. Yes, he's immune to to discipline. It's it's so true. I get so many of them, and I said, but you know, it's it's sort of a an opposite uh, vending machine. It, you're, you're you're dishing out all of these punishments for for different little uh, misdemeanors. And it, it's just crazy chasing these kids down, and, and the parent understands it, it, it's not getting me anywhere. Right. And this is what leads children, parents and children, uh, almost invariably into the offices of mental health professionals where they get tested, diagnosed, and medicated. That's right. And I've, I've seen that quite a bit um, where the parent is so frustrated that they don't know what to do anymore, and they uh, make the decision that the child has some terrible mental health issue. Uh, and well, you know, with psychiatrists um, being you know available, uh, that's what they do. They'll see the child. They they will give the child a diagnosis because anything can fit into a diagnosis. And then they the child will be medicated, but it's not in the child's best interest. I've never seen a child go down that path and come out better. Well, you may disagree with this. I'd like to to get your take on this. But uh, my feeling is there's no scientific validity to any of these uh, behavior disorder diagnoses anyway, that they are constructs. They they don't rest on a solid scientific foundation in the first place. Well, and and not only that, yes, I agree with that. Um, and that might be my, my answer there might be controversial. But it's it's even more so. It's 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 exactly what I'm going to repeat what I said. I've never seen. I mean, I've been practicing pediatrics for 23 years. I have never seen a child go down the path of uh, visiting a psychiatrist, and which in that way, visiting the psychiatrist and being treated uh, with with uh, psych meds, doing better. 
that's a long time to be practicing medicine and not seeing a positive outcome. Oh, absolutely. And and most parents don't understand. And and I would dare say, I mean, I've talked to pediatricians about this and it blows their minds um, that none of these medications that are used to treat these uh, behavior disorders, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and oppositional defiant disorder, uh, probably being the top two in the list, uh, have reliably outperformed placebos in double blind clinical trials. And for the benefit of our listeners who may be overwhelmed by the science of the last statement, a double-blind clinical trial is simply a trial in which a, the, uh, the results of a chemical compound called a pharmaceutical drug are compared with the results of an inert compound like bicarbonate of soda and, uh, Neither the person taking the drug nor the person administering the drug or the placebo knows whether the uh, drug, in quotes, being given is the actual drug or the placebo. And uh, that is the standard way of testing these drugs. And uh, it blows most people's minds when I tell them, well, these drugs are, in effect, expensive placebos with side effects. And, That's right. Yeah. On top of everything else, you get the side effects. The yeah. people who are taking the placebo don't get those. Right, exactly. And the side of, they tell you the drugs are safe. Well, if they're safe, then why are they, what are they, class two uh, are narcotics yeah, or something? Yeah, they're narcotics. So yeah. That, that, uh, they're restricted. Um, the doctor has to have a DEA license. So you can't give more than one month at a time. They're controlled. And it's it, it's really something, and we're... we're um, treating our children's forming brains, <laughs> their brains in development uh, with medications that we really, parents, don't, don't know what the outcome will be of these medications. So we, we really must scrutinize. And I'm not saying that there isn't a place for e- everybody on earth, but we really should be scrutinizing as parents before we go down that pathway whether this is indeed the best thing for our children. And one more, and you may know this study, John, because this gets me very excited. Uh, but there was a study that was done, I think it was last year, it came out in France. I'll tell you and, what I want you to do, Rose. I um, want you to hold this thought because we're okay. right up against a hard break. Uh, but I want you to stay for another segment because this is fascinating. Folks, uh, I'm talking with Rose Stein, pediatrician from Burlington, North Carolina. And uh, we'll be right back with more of this politically incorrect speech. From American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now, once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome back to the show, folks. Because I said so, I'm your host, John Rosemond. I'm talking with Rose Stein, pediatrician from Burlington, North Carolina. And um, she started out uh, operating a fairly standard pediatric practice, but over the years has uh, shifted her paradigm and is working more and more and more in behavioral pediatrics with amazing results. And to me, Rose, the greatest uh, thing of all is that uh, the work you're doing is uh, keeping kids 
out of the clutches of mental health professionals and keeping kids off medication. I was talking to uh, your husband, Dave, earlier, and he was telling me about the the work that you're doing with um, autistic kids. So uh, I'm just going to let you ramble about that for a while. Oh, sure. I would love to share about a, a, a young man, and we'll call him Adrian. Uh, Adrian, uh, when he first was assigned to me, was uh, he's, he was five years old, and that was probably about a year, year and a half ago. Okay. He was being raised by his grandfather, abandoned by his mother and his father, uh, and his grandfather is a nice, educated uh, business owner, and he took upon himself this, this young boy and realized when he was about a year old that Adrian was very different, and he wouldn't speak but he also wouldn't make eye contact. And so at that point, they went down the, the track of uh, the diagnosis of autism, uh, going to special schools. Uh, and so here he is. He's, he's five, going on six. And because he was so disruptive, so aggressive, he had been uh, referred to me. And I'm thinking, this is completely out of my league. They've actually brought me a boy who acted little more than like an animal. Uh, he uh, was combative. Uh, he wouldn't sit still. He was standing on the exam table, could not get down, uh, would throw everything that was given to him. It was impossible to do the exam on him. Uh, he would punch his, his grandfather, would come short of punching and hitting me. Uh, and I thought to myself, I don't, I don't know if I can help this boy. So initially, there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of hope for this kid. I mean... You know, uh, you call him an animal. He was completely unsocialized. And that's right. And he was actually worse than than most animals because you can make some animals listen to you and obey and be pleasant. Uh, but when Adrian did not want to obey and did not want to be pleasant, there was no controlling Adrian. And Adrian is a robust boy, uh, which made it even more concerning. Adrian was enrolled in a special school. Uh, his teachers dealt with him all day, and if, if he wanted to get to do something, there was no getting in his way. He would scream and yell until it was done, uh, and that was the way his life proceeded. He, he didn't look happy. He would make no, like I said, no eye contact, so there was um, no tenderness to him. So I asked Granddad, are there moments when he's tender and he's nice and he's sweet? I wanted to hear a little bit of good things that there could have been about Adrian so that we could make headway within the good. And he said, yes, that when there are certain shows on TV that he loves, and when that they were on, if Granddad was watching them, he would come up and snuggle against him and just watch them and be very sweet and nice. I said, well, that's not the boy I'm seeing here. Uh, The next thing that he said was that Adrian was very smart. He was so smart that he had figured out had to get into YouTube pages uh, on the computer, and he would know where to go in and get the specific YouTube pages that he had liked in the past, which I found absolutely intriguing. So this little guy who is five, I I can't manage a YouTube page, and, you know, I'm a lot more than five, uh, was able to recollect where the YouTube pages were that he liked and would sit there and start giggling when he found them and would show them to people. And in fact, he knew how to project them from the tablet to the TV and had never been shown how to do that. Well, he's smarter than I am when it comes to technology, I'll tell you. That's pretty bright. And I said, okay, so there's a brain in there. 
Um, so that's good. Yeah, functional brain. We know that now. He can <laughs> he can problem solve. He can work through. Uh, mental uh, equations, call them. Yeah, he's a smart kid. We know that now. That's right. And so I said, we're going to work on that teeny weeny bit of hope. And I want you to visualize the future that your grandson can have. And, and we're going to work on a little bit each time you come in, and I want you not to give up hope. I want you to, to think about what Adrian can become. So a small incremental approach, one one behavior one issue behavioral at a time. One behavioral aspect at a time is right. where I started because I didn't want I I didn't want to overwhelm Granddad and for him to get frustrated and not come back. I said, so what does he do? What is he able to do? Is he able to take off his clothes? Is he able to put on his clothes? So he was able to take off his clothes, but only when he wanted to. Otherwise, he wouldn't do it. I said, uh huh. That means he's able to take off his clothes a hundred percent of the time. You can't just forget it. And he was amazed that Adrian could not forget how to take his clothes off. I said, no, he's being defiant. He knows how to take them off. So he needs to be able to take them off every day. So that's what we're going to work on every day, figuring out that you will win over his taking the clothes off. But it, would, it were things like that that we would, we would hone in on little tasks that we would accomplish. And, okay, we got that one done. And I would tell Granddad, okay, that mission has been accomplished. You will not allow him to push back. So where are you today with, uh, with this young fellow? So last uh, Christmas, he came in, I think it was two days before Christmas. And Adrian is well-dressed. He dressed himself that day. He's potty trained. He was not before. He was in diapers. Uh, he is attending kindergarten level schools. He's still in, in uh, individualized educational program. But, but now at a kindergarten level, instead of being, this is a year and a half now, he's seven. Uh, and he's speaking. So he came over to me, Merry Christmas, I love you, my doctor. Oh, what a sweet story. I mean, and what a, and what a wonderful outcome, Rose. You ought to use that story. I mean, if you use that story in your campaign for superintendent of uh, education in North Carolina, you, you'd have a, a shoe in victory, I guarantee you. <laughs> Well, you've had um, you've had a lot of success also with kids with uh, pretty serious school performance issues. Talk about that for a while. Yes, I, I have. I'm thinking about the first child that I saw today, uh, and he is eight years old, uh, and he had come to me, I think it was at the beginning of the school year, mom was very disappointed uh, because he was doing so poorly. He started third grade, but they said that he was reading at between a kindergarten and a first grade level. Uh, he was going to be pushed back down into second grade, and why he was promoted to third grade when he was doing so poorly was beyond me. Uh, but uh, now he was acting very inappropriately towards his mom, throwing things at her, slamming doors, calling her names, and it was going downhill from there. Uh, incredibly enough, at school he wasn't behaving poorly. It was just that he was performing poorly. And you say he was being promoted from grade to grade regardless. That's right. And this is because uh, in order to diagnose a kid as having a learning disability, there has to be a discrepancy, a certain discrepancy between the child's level of academic performance and grade level. And one way to get that discrepancy is to push the kid along and ensure that from year to year the discrepancy grows and eventually meets the standard for entrance into the exceptional child program. 
then they begin to get extra money from the federal government and the state. And it's it's a scam. But uh, anyway, tell us about this kid and, and what uh, what transpired with him. It was probably over six months ago when the, the school year began. He's starting sixth grade. Hard to imagine uh, that he was a little tyrant uh, at home, but that's the only place he was a tyrant. And he was only a tyrant with his younger brother, and with his mom. So we could call him a little bully, in fact. Uh, but at, at school, he was well-behaved, but doing very poorly. With Dad, <laughs> surprise, he would behave. Mom was upset because she had not been told that he was doing poorly in kindergarten, first, and second grade. And now they told her that he didn't know how to read. Did he forget how to read? They couldn't really tell me. They said they, they thought he knew how to read, but now all of a sudden he doesn't know how to read. It's beginning to sound like more of a motivational issue that's, than it, anything it else. It might have been, except that I went over the whole history with Mom, and I, I, uh, I have a special blue book. It's Daniel Webster's uh, Reading Primer, uh, and that's where I ascertain whether children can read or not. Because you're I've, you're I've, kidding. This is from the 19th century. Oh, yes. It's my favorite. So I get my, my uh, reading primer out and bring it into the room and say, okay, let's read together. And, in fact, this kid was reading words that he had memorized only. And he could see the word block and say black, or say, look at the word cart and say car or card. And it was either because he was just not paying attention or he didn't know the words and he didn't know how to sound the words out. It was very clear that he only knew the words that he had memorized and he was very short on, on the, that number of words. And by the time he was done with the sentence, well, all was forgotten. Uh, if you took him outside of the range of reading that he had, then he wasn't able to read at all. So he was really reading like at an early first grade level. He was probably able to, to get himself just barely out of second grade. In third grade, it all fell apart because he wasn't able to identify words. And I said, that's where the problem is. He's bored. He's not doing well. Uh, he feels that everybody's passing him by, and he's coming home, and he's acting out because he feels he's sort of worthless, and he's acting out with the people who will take it, Mom and, and, uh, and his younger brother. The, this is, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the sort of outcome when you, that you get when the schools are teaching this whole language approach to reading as opposed to a phonetics approach. The, uh, the child can basically fool the system into thinking that he has a basic uh, reading understanding when, in fact, he doesn't. That's right. This young man, the, the primary reason he came in was not because he was misbehaving at school. It was because the school noticed that he was fidgety, he wasn't paying attention, he wasn't able to understand anything. So it was time to get him on a medication. Well, Rose, we got exactly 30 seconds left. So uh, okay, tell us, tell us what happened in 30 seconds. He knows how to read. He went up to having all Bs because we drilled reading into him. Now he's a B student. He's feeling much better about himself. He has chores that he does. And mom comes in with a smile and says, Dr. Stein, I don't need you. 
When you correctly understand the problem, you can make tremendous strides. Folks, we've had Rosemary Stein, pediatrician from Burlington, North Carolina, with us today. Delightful conversation, Rose, and uh, I'd love to have you on the shows at some future time. Would you consider that? I would love that. Wonderful. Well, we've come up against another hard break, folks. We'll be right back. Alrighty then, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. Carried exclusively on American Family Radio, the show is all about what is now known as parenting. And our number is 404-419-6499 if you'd like to call us with a question or a comment. Once again, 404-419-6499 or if you prefer some anonymity, uh, you can always email your question to us at radio at Rosemond, and that's R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D dot com. And we do have a caller in the line. on the line. Uh, it's Tanya from the great state of Mississippi. Tanya, how can I help you? Hi, Dr. Rosemond. My question is, um, I work with elementary and secondary educators often and our classrooms are inundated with procedures and programs that help with classroom management. And one of those is called conscious discipline. And from what I can tell, it seems to be based in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is kind of an accepted foundation in education, um, and they construct many things from that. So I would like to better understand its history and what it's grounded in. Could you help me with that? Well, I'd love to be able to help you, Tanya, and um, since I wasn't as a parent uh, during my parenting years practicing conscious parenting, maybe I was unconscious and need to revisit all those years and, mm-hmm. and do something to make up to my children for the fact that I wasn't fully conscious. Um, the fact of the matter is that I don't read parenting books. I'm a parenting expert, but I'm not a parenting expert expert. And the reason I don't read other people's parenting stuff is because I realized early on when I was reading it, thinking, oh, I got to keep up with all this stuff. You know, after all, it's my field. I realized that I was letting other people's opinions, other people's points of view, other people's advice color my own point of view and uh, knock it slightly wobbly and off course. And so I just stopped reading parenting books pretty much uh, entirely. The irony is I've written 20 if you count the revisions, the updates, the upgrades. You know, somebody will send me a, a brand new parenting book, the latest thing, and I will read a smattering of stuff in it, a page here, a page there. And believe me, a smattering of stuff is all I need to get the uh, the general gist of things and to understand the author's point of view. And it's his point of view that is important. His advice is a function of his point of view concerning children and parental responsibilities. So now we have this thing, conscious parenting. Uh, You know, let's not be unconscious. Let's be conscious. Anyway, this stuff just, uh, you know, the the whole idea that there's now a new way of doing things just irritates the living daylights out of me. Uh, God has told us how to raise his children. Uh, do you really think that God would have given us inadequate instructions? 
to do the most important thing that can be done, and that is raise children and prepare them for the kingdom, uh, it's inconceivable. We don't need humanism. We don't need behaviorism. We don't need Freudianism. We don't need gestalt psychologists. Um, Tanya, you probably know this. You've been listening to the show for a while. Uh, many of my regular listeners know this, uh, but it bears repeating for those people who are new to the show, and that is that I'm an outlier in my field. I think psychology is responsible for most of the problems American parents are having today, uh, which are problems their great-grandparents didn't have. And I believe that especially in the Christian community, we need to unplug from psychological advice quickly and get back to Main Street, which is the street our great-grandparents lived on when it came to the rearing of children, and get back there quickly and begin doing things the right biblical way in the raising of kids and, and um, the, uh, the operation of families. Once again, we need to do this very, very quickly. A, a lot depends upon it. What most people don't understand is, and I understand it because I'm a psychologist, I see the profession from the inside, no psychological theory has ever been verified through objective research. None. Isn't that startling? The efficacy of no psychological therapy has ever been verified. The reliable efficacy of no psychological therapy has ever been verified through objective research. In other words, research conducted by people who have no dog in the race. Uh, the research, in fact finds that people with high school educations give advice that's every bit as good as people with PhDs. And um, I'm a guy who doesn't even think that my profession qualifies to be a restricted profession. You ought not to have a license to go be a counselor. You want to be a counselor? Go be a counselor and let marketplace forces separate the wheat from the chaff, which they will do very, very quickly. Yeah, so all that having been said, uh, perhaps to some people's relief, um, <laughs> I, uh, I turn back to you, Tanya. I've heard of this conscious discipline stuff. I've heard about it for a couple of years. Quite frankly, I've never been interested. But now that you've asked the question, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Internet. And I'm going to learn as much about it as I can, and I'm going to talk about it in an upcoming show. And uh, I'm going to uh, undoubtedly expose it for what it is, and that is more babble. But, you know, um, Tanya, you know something about it. Uh, you're you're um, in a classroom situation where its use is being mandated by the state, and so, you know, you've got some experience with it. So how about you tell me and our listening audience what you think about it? It's on a social-emotional um, relationship to students being the key factor in helping them to um, be aware of where they are in whatever decisions they're making so that they can own and redirect their behaviors as facilitated by a teacher. Well, so give me an example here, Tanya. I'm just going to throw something out to you. Let's say a child, a seven-year-old child, calls his uh, second-grade teacher by a nasty epithet. Uh, how would the conscious discipline proponent 
um, advocate dealing with that? Um, typically, there is this first stage where you make the child aware of what's what's transpiring and where they are coming from. You are angry. You you called me a name. You name whatever it is, and then from there, once you establish some kind of eye contact and, and relationship, usually it's proximity and um, your stance position. Then you move into, now, let's go to a second place. What's really going on with you? What's really happening? And then you try to tap into whatever the real problems are and identify those and make the child aware of where that is. Then it goes into the next stage where you say, now, what what are we going to do about this? This is not okay. You're not allowed to call me this. So there's typically three levels or three layers of most of it from what I can gather from the information that I've been exposed to. So I'm very curious as to how that um, plays into a child and simply going that's wrong, you're not allowed to do that. So their, their premise is you don't just send them away or send them out of a classroom for doing those things. You need to address it because they're only going to come back and repeat the behaviors because nothing has changed. Well, So that's where it's coming from. Yeah, the, here, here's, the, here's the deal and the bottom line, if you will. Uh, ever since the late 1960s, um, the American public school system has been attaching itself to one uh, nouveau classroom management system after another, each one promising to, uh, you know, uh, create uh, behavioral nirvana in the American classroom. And uh, this is just the latest iteration of these bandwagons that have paraded themselves through America's public schools. And indeed, if one talks to older teachers as much as I do, it is impossible to come to any conclusion other than none of these classroom behavior management systems have worked. Uh, Teachers knew they weren't going to work from the very outset that they were unrealistic, that they were theoretical, that they weren't practical. I mean, just from your description, Tanya, what teachers got the time to be doing that? Right. You know, let's let's talk about the fact that you call me a nasty name. Let's try and find out what really happened to you. Let's find out what you know what you're really saying. Let's find out what um, what the problem really is. Well, I can tell you what the problem really is. The Children in question are undisciplined brats. There's nothing the school can do to correct these problems in the absence of parents who are completely on board. They're going to follow up at home. They're not going to defend their children. That is the key to classroom behavior management is parents. It's not conscious discipline. It's not, you know, any newfangled discipline by any name. Tanya, thanks an awful lot for your call. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I oftentimes uh, talk about my books on this program, including my latest, Grandma Was Right After All, in which I seek to recover Grandma's wisdom by resurrecting 
her very pithy parenting aphorisms of the 1950s and before. These are parenting principles that sprang from a biblical view of the world, principles from the good old days that are just as valid today and will help your kids succeed in life. More information is available on my website at johnroseman.com. This is Because I Said So, a call-in program all about what is today called parenting. Next week, we'll get together at the same time, 5 Central. Why? Because I said so. From Creative Genius Productions and the American Family Radio Network, take care. God bless.